Hey, would you grab your Bibles? Turn to John 13. We'll read our text and then you can have a seat. All right, let's go to 28 where our focus is going to be 31 and 32. Let's go up to 28, kind of put it all together. It's in the context of Judas up in 28. So now no one at the table knew why he had said this to him. Some thought that because Jesus had, Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. And when he had gone out, Jesus said, now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. And if God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. You may be seated. If you would, just for a moment, go back to chapter 12, and I want to show you something that very similar to what we just read there and what we will talk about. If you remember in the triumphal entry um, during that week and during that time, some Greeks came to Andrew and, and wanted to have an audience with Jesus and talk with him. So in John 12, 23, when the Greeks come, it says, And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. So now we are in the upper room. This is Thursday night. Judas has gone out of the room. He is there with the eleven, possibly with some others are there as well. And he turns to the eleven and begins to share some things with them. And it goes back to John 12, and it goes to the reason why Christ came. He came to glorify His Father in the laying down of His life on the cross to bear our sin and to give us the hope of eternal life. So all through Christ's ministry, there were moments when He had been given great glory. There was one leper who came back and gave Him great praise and great thanks. There were other moments when people were very thankful. And so there are aspects when Christ got glory. On Monday, when he came in, riding in on the donkey, and people are taking their cloaks off, they're laying palm branches down, and they were shouting, Hosanna. He got great glory on that day. But as we come to this section of John chapter 13, Jesus is communicating about the cross, that there's going to be a new aspect that hasn't been revealed yet, that had been promised, that was going to be fulfilled, and that is that Christ would get great glory by laying his life down and dying on the cross. As we speak about the cross today and, and talk about the glory of, of what it means that He died for us in our place as our substitute, it is important for us to remember that Jesus' death did not happen as some inevitable result because man hated God. Yes, man, in his heart, hated God. But I want to make sure that we understand this had always been the plan of God for Christ to lay His life down. So as the apostles in the upper room are, on the day of Pentecost are filled with the Holy Spirit, they step out in the street and they begin to proclaim in foreign languages, languages they had never spoken before, so that the inhabitants who had come at that time, they could hear the gospel in their language. There comes a time where things settle down and Peter becomes kind of the focal point of this gathering. And he says these words, listen, this is Acts 2.23, very important words to understand. Peter says, this Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge 
of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up. His father raised him up. Loosing the pangs of death. Because it was, praise his name, it was not possible for death to hold him. It could not hold him down. He would rise as we just sung about. So we're going to talk about coming to the hour of the cross this morning. These are Jesus' words. Jesus will mention in these two verses we will examine today. He will say glorified, glorified, glorified. And then in verse 32 he will say glorify, glorify. Every aspect of this is centered around the cross. Telling us this, that the biggest display of the glory of God, and there are a lot of displays of the glory of God, is seen in the cross of Christ. We learn about the nature of God, His love, His mercy, His justice, um, so many things about Him, and we learn so much about Christ as well. So on this night, Jesus looks at the cross, And as he looks at the cross, he knew that it was not about shame, though the cross in that day was designed to be shameful. He knew that the cross was about the glory of God. And so that's why as as Judas leaves, the traitor leaves, and he turns to the eleven who are going to be the leaders of the early church, and he communicates to them, this is the theme of the Bible, this is the theme of life. It is that my Father and I as the Son of Man and the Spirit Though he doesn't mention the Spirit, but the Spirit is to get the glory as well in everything. And so Jesus, looking at the cross in its face, speaks of the glory in the text. And I um, shared this with the first service. I'll share it with you as well. Um, I felt it when I went to bed last night. I kind of felt it all week. You may as well. I felt it when I woke up this morning. There's just a heaviness in our world right now. We see it in our country. We see it in countries across the globe. There's a big hurricane about to come into the land that's going to devastate, you know, um, aspects of the, um, of the Gulf Coast. And, and there's, just a, there's just looking around a lot, a lot of different things that are tragic. But there's hope this morning. And let me tell you, let me remind us why there's hope. The hope is, is that God came in flesh. And he willingly laid his life down on a cross. And in that act... The, off, the offer is not, well, remember this, John 16, 33, we're not there yet, but in this world, you will have tribulation, but you need to take heart. I have overcome the world, and in me, you will find peace. And so in a chaotic world, I want to remind Christ's followers this morning that in the midst of all of that, listen, was it not chaotic 2,000 years ago on this Thursday night? It's Passover Jesus is about to be crucified. The devil has inhabited the body of Judas. He's gone out of the room. This is a chaotic night. It's going to be chaotic in the next morning. And so in a chaotic world, it is the peace of God, the presence of God, the power of God, the person of God, who is our great hope. And so we're going to talk about that reality today. And I think it's fitting in light of all the events that's going on around us that we would talk about the hope of the cross and the glory of God in the cross this morning. So let's look at the first thing this morning. It'll be up on the screen there. And I, I just want to deal with the first four words in the ESV. And I want to talk about Judas because I think it's important for us to just deal with him one more time. And I want to talk about stepping away from the Son of God. So the first four 
words of John 13, 31 says, And when he was gone, these words should not be overlooked by us. They indicate a great tragedy that is happening and taking place. And it indicates the grave darkness that can inhabit the human heart. This act of him going, Jesus has told him, what you're about to do, I want you to go. Do it quickly. He's going to go. He's going to get the authorities. He knows Jesus is going to be at the Garden of Gethsemane. He's going to bring those authorities. And so Judas' act of leaving is going to commence what the world had been waiting for since Genesis 3.15. When God spoke to the enemy in the, in the garden and said, I'm going to, from the seed of the woman is going to come one, and I'm going to put enmity between you and the woman, and you will strike his heel, but he will step on you. He will crush you, and he will be the victorious one. And so the world has been waiting for that ever since Genesis 3.15. And Jesus says, now the hour has come. It's present. It's here. It's about to be fulfilled. And so Judas leaves. This is the last time Judas is in the presence of Christ. This is the last time he is face to face with Jesus. It's the last time that he will hear, and he'd heard Jesus speak many, many times. It's the last time that he will hear the words of Jesus. It's the last time that he has offered love from Christ, as Christ has dipped the prized morsel and offered it to Judas at the table. It is also the last time that he's in a community of believers who, as they looked around the room, couldn't imagine that Judas was the one who would be the betrayer. If you remember last week, when Jesus said, one of you is going to betray me, they all looked around, and they couldn't imagine anybody in the room would have betrayed Jesus. So it's the last time he would have been in a room where people loved Judas. And for the sake of financial gain and the deceitfulness of his own heart, Judas stepped away from the Son of God permanently and eternally. And I said this last week, there's a lot of people in the last 20 to 25 years in and around the church that want to get Judas into heaven. I just want to remind us that we were, we were told last week that Satan entered his body. And under the inspiration of the Spirit, all of the writers say this word, not that Judas was redeemed, but he is always called the betrayer or the traitor. And so Judas is separated eternally from God, and it's an incredible tragic thing. So what did he walk away from? And I want to talk about that just for a moment. I want to point out some things that he walked away from. Here's the first one. These will be up on the screen if you're taking notes. He willfully walks away from Jesus permanently and eternally. Yes, he is the son of perdition that it had been spoken of, that one would come who would betray. But he is still responsible for his actions. This is the path that Judas chose. Plus, up to that very moment, he is continually being offered the love of Christ, the friendship of Christ. He's seated to the left of Jesus. We talked about that last week in a place of honor. He has given the prized morsel at the man. He has continued at the meal. He has continued to be offered love and grace from Christ. But he steps away from the Son of God, and he does so willfully, permanently, and eternally. Secondly. He walked away from the strength of community. I can't imagine what it must have been like for these guys. Again, would you just think with me just for a moment? Can you imagine living with Jesus for three years? Can you just imagine how incredible that must have been? How they just were blown away sometimes, confused a lot of times. But Judas was a part of that for three years. And within that group, he had 11 other men who thought, Judas is my brother. He's going to be faithful to the end. And Judas was the greatest hypocrite in the history of the world, and he had fooled everybody. 
And he steps away from a place. He had brothers. He could have, he could have said, help me. I need help. He could have sought out accountability, but he did not. He had secrets. And I hope you know this, that secrets of sin and betrayal are incredibly dangerous to maintaining a godly life and a purposeful life of walking faithfully with Christ. He had convinced himself, as many do today, that nobody else knows what's going on, and so I'm okay. The issue is is that God always knows. He sees the heart. He knows what is there. And uh, I also want to point this out. I think it's really important. We see a lot of chaos in our world today, a lot of tragedy, and I want to remind us we are not engaged in a physical war. What kind of war are we engaged in? It's spiritual. So everything we see is manifested. The spiritual war manifests itself on the earth in a physical way. We see that. And then sometimes we don't see it. And I want to point this out. I said this last week, and it's important to remember at this point. John 13 tells us that Satan entered the body of Judas, and nobody in the room knows. Nobody knows this. Jesus knows, but nobody else does. So sometimes we go, wow, it's clear Satan's at work there. Sometimes you don't even know what's going on in the room. Satan is at work planning and purposing. So when, so when Satan entered the body of Judas, he didn't speak in a freaky, weird language. He didn't flop around on the ground. He just looked normal. And yet he was inhabited by Satan himself. And so sometimes in the midst of community, we can play the game and be hurting and be carrying around some really deep burdens. So the encouragement is this, open up our lives, let others in so that we can have the accountability that we need. Here's the third thing about what Judas stepped away from. He stepped away from a purposeful life. His own plans were greater than the priority of aligning his life with Christ's purpose. Now again, it was predicted that one would be this son of perdition who would turn his back and betray the Lord. But all through, I just remind us, there was a continual offer of grace that Christ made to him. And in the end, Judas preferred a life away from Jesus rather than a life with him. His name is, by the way, in the last 2,000 years, nobody has named their son what? Judas. Why? Because every time his name's mentioned, it either says the one who betrayed or the one who was the traitor. He never knew the glory of the cross of Christ. He never knew it. He never knew the hope that would be offered to the world. He is only known as the betrayer and the traitor. Here's the fourth thing. He misses, as he steps away on this night, he misses living and knowing the glory of Christ. He is gone. He's away now. And he misses everything that we're about to start walking through. It's Jesus just pours these incredible words out of his heart, out of his infinite wisdom and mind, and, and communicates these things. And so, listen, stepping away from the Son of God, and it's happening more and more in the church today. It's called deconstructing stories. It's kind of all the stuff that's out there, but many, many people are walking away from the faith, and you can never find life away from Jesus, for He is life. So I want to remind us in the room this morning, you're here. I want to plead with you. I want you to listen to the heart of God this morning, that the cross reveals His glory. It reveals His love. It reveals the invitation to come to life. 
So I'm just going to deal with two words now, so you've got to be patient with me. We're just two verses, but we're going we're gonna, to, as we do this, every word matters. So I want to talk about the words that say, Jesus said. These are important words. So the, the text says, when he had gone out, Jesus said. And I want to talk for a moment about the authority of Jesus speaking. That our God is a speaking God who reveals himself in Christ and reveals himself in the written text. The moment is intense on this Thursday night. His death is imminent. And he wants those followers of Christ, his followers, to grasp the words that he will share because they will need them in the coming days. And these words that we're about to undertake in the days and months to come, walking through John 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17, are some of the most important things that have ever been spoken in the history of the world. This section is incredibly important. And I shared a few weeks ago, I have, I have more than any other section of the Old Testament and New Testament, I have gone back to John 13 through 17 more than any other section. And it just has some of the deepest things and most important things for us to see and understand from the heart of Christ. And so it is really key to note, really important for me to emphasize this morning, that Jesus could have done a lot of different things with these 11 men in the last hours of his life. They could have taken another short-term mission trip somewhere. They could have done a number of other things. He spends these last hours teaching, giving them the words that they will need in the coming days. And it sets up for us a model that the early church did. What did the early church do? They committed themselves to the apostles' teaching. What was the apostles' teaching? Well, it was Jesus' teaching. The apostles taught what Jesus taught. On this night, Jesus is teaching them the words that they would teach in the days ahead as the church is born. So the model for the church and the foundational ministry of the church is the church is about the proclamation of the Word of God to the exaltation of Christ. Oh, this thing's driving me crazy. Um, it did good in the first service. Here we go. All right. Maybe I just need, I need, to calm, maybe I need to calm down a little bit, but I can't calm down. We're talking about the cross. I can't calm down this morning. Everything is to flow in the life of the church from exalting God through the teaching of the Scripture. So he spends these last hours pouring out his heart in the truth, teaching the truth of the kingdom to his closest followers. And it leads us to this statement that I want to make. Right knowledge stemming from a right theology will always lead to a right ministry. And this is what happens so often in the church nowadays is that our knowledge is wrong because we've learned from bad theology and bad doctrine. And so therefore the church misses its way and doesn't have the right kind of ministry. And so on this night Jesus models for us that the authority of his speaking is the absolute priority of our lives and for the church. So let's talk about these words now. And thirdly, this morning, I want to talk about the glory of the Father and the Son. And we'll have some few subpoints under these um, that are spoken in verses 31 through 32. So now we're actually going to get to the real words that Jesus spoke. And so let's look at those, the next part of verse 31. So Jesus says, now, in this moment, immediately, right now, now the Son of Man is glorified, 
Five times in the text, glorified or glory, three times glorified, two times glory are spoken of. This is the theme of the Bible, the glory of God. You go all the way back to Genesis chapter 1, the very first pages, the very first aspect of this. And it says this, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. We learn immediately about the glory of God, that God is the creator. He was before time. He was before creation. So therefore, He gets the great glory as the Creator. You come all the way to Moses and his leadership with the people. He gets the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai. And as the Word has been given to the people, and he comes and he down and he shares it with the people, these, these laws that God gives to guide the people of God, they are about the glory of God. So just listen to some of these words. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an image that in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You should not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to thousands of generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. And then he tells them, do not misuse my name. So creation points to his glory. The Ten Commandments point to his glory. The prophets point to the glory of God. Isaiah writes in 42.8, I, I am the Lord, that is my name, and I will not yield my glory to another or my praise to idols. Daniel writes about seeing the Son of Man coming and being given this dominion and this glory and this kingdom that all peoples and nations and languages should serve Him. You come to the Gospels, what's the theme of the Gospels? The glory of Christ. So John writes in John 1.14, The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us, and we have seen His glory, John writes. The glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. All of the letters that were written under the inspiration of the Spirit, dealing with issues in certain churches and things so that we would have right doctrine and right theology, they say this about the glory of Christ. Hebrews 1.3 The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of His being. Peter writes in 2 Peter 1.16 For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were, Peter says, eyewitnesses. I saw His majesty. And then he says, For when we received honor... For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory, Peter says, I was also an ear witness. The Father said this, this is my son. I'm very well pleased with him. Paul writes in Colossians 1.19, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. You get the very last book of the Bible in Revelation, and John's on the Isle of Patmos, exiled for his faith. And he's sitting there one day, worshiping on the Lord's day. And listen to this, Revelation 1.12. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands was one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe, and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like wool, like snow. 
His eyes were like a flame of fire, and His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and His voice was like a roar of many waters. And in His right hand He held seven stars, and from His mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And listen how John just beholds this picture. And he says these words, John, John writes, he says, And his face was like the sun shining in the fullness of its strength. And John says, he just, understatement, says, I, I, he kind of didn't know what to do, but he said, this, this is what I did. And I fell at his feet as if I were dead. And ever the tender Savior came up and what I thought about this this week, what this must have been like for John. He had lived with Jesus for three years. Jesus has been gone from his life in the physical sense. Now he's indwelt by the Spirit. He's relating to Christ through the Spirit in connection with that in the Word. And, and it, he says this, and Jesus came over and put his hand on John's shoulder. God, can you imagine when John realizes this is my Savior? This is the one that I, I live for. He says this, but he laid his right hand on me and he said, you fear not. I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and Hades. Church, hear the heart of Christ this morning. He turns to the leaven and he tells them, the great theme of the world is my glory and the glory of the Father. And I want you to know that now in this moment, the reason I came, I'm going to get the greatest glory in what I'm about to do. And I want you to know that now is the time when the Son of Man is glorified. It is the dominant theme of Scripture. From the beginning to the end, the glory of the Son of God. And for the apostles, he'd been telling them he's going to go to Jerusalem. He's going to be betrayed. He's going to die, but he'll rise again. But it's hard. We live on the other side of that, and we've had a lifetime or years to kind of come to a place to understand that. They, they haven't seen the, the glory of the cross in Christ. They don't know this yet. And so he's telling them these words, now is the Son of Man going to be glorified. Christ had been in Glorified in his words, he'd been glorified already in his words. He'd been glorified at his baptism when the Father spoke. He'd been glorified at the transfiguration as the Father affirms him. He'd been glorified when the Greeks came, Passion Week, to talk to him. And he says those words, he says the words, Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. No, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. And then Jesus says, Father, glorify your name. And a voice came from heaven that day in Jerusalem. And the Father said, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. When you go to the cross, I'm going to glorify your name. So he's already been that week affirmed by the people as they laid their cloaks down and shouted, Hosanna. He's been glorified this week by the Father. And then in just hours, he's going to be glorified in the cross. And this will be a fresh revelation of God's glory to them that will now be present in his life and for every Christ follower to fully understand what is there is that he will bear our sin in his body and he will rise from the dead and he will get great glory in that. So there is going to be, he's telling them, there's going to be a great revelation of my glory. You've already seen a lot of my glory, but you're going to see something so amazing. 
I'm going to bear the sin of the world, and then I'm going to rise again, and I will conquer the grave. And you will give me glory, and the Father will get glory from what I do. So Jesus is saying the fullness of this time is now here in your midst. The fullness of who he is will be seen in his death and his resurrection, his ascension, his exaltation. And he's going to get incredible glory. Guess what? He's coming back again. And when he comes, it will not be like Bethlehem on a quiet night. Every eye will see the returning, reigning King Jesus. And he will get glory on that day. So what should be our primary preoccupation? What should drive our lives? Well, here's what I'd like to put before us today. It's a broken record. Pretty good broken record. Behold the cross. Fix our eyes on the cross of Christ and the glory of the one who is there. That should be our great preoccupation. The exaltation of Christ We are to live for the lifting up of the Lord and honoring Him. And so that is why He turns to the eleven and focuses their attention on this truth. And you know what happens when we are lost in His glory? You know what happens to our glory? It just fades away. By the way, I'll say this again. Nobody in this room is impressive. I'm not impressed by anybody. There's a lot of, I love you. I'm not impressive. But boy, he sure is glorious. And when we are lost in his glory and his majesty, we're not real concerned about what anybody else thinks because we, our value is connected not in what a man who's got broken, sinful hearts thinks. Our value is seen in that the Son of God came to lay his life down to give us hope and salvation. And that's where... Our life is seen in having this value and purpose and direction. So the Son of Man is going to be glorified. Guess who else is going to be glorified in the cross? The Father is. So Jesus speaks of that next. So look at 31. We'll put all the 31 together. So now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in Him. When you look at the word God there, who is He talking about? He's talking about His Father. So He's referencing the Father. And so now the Son of Man is going to be glorified, and God is glorified in Him. Now the Spirit also is glorified in all this, because three persons, one God, in the work of salvation, the Spirit brings about the new birth. We know that from John chapter 3. So the Trinity is involved in all of this. The Father sends the Son, the Son lays His life down, the Spirit brings new birth and indwells us at salvation. So I want to talk now just for a moment about the Father being glorified in the cross of Christ. So as the cross gives great glory to Jesus, Jesus says it also glorifies the Father. So how, how do you and I, how can we define or understand what, it, what does it mean, God's glory? When we say God's glory, what, is, what does that mean? Well, God's glory is this. He, it is seen, His glory is seen in every aspect, in every attribute that is connected to the nature and person of God. So therefore, His glory is seen in all kinds of magnificent things that we see in Scripture. Let me just throw out a few. His glory is seen in His mercy. His glory is seen in being our good shepherd and our great shepherd who provides for us and protects us and is faithful to us. His glory is seen in His nature of being our great provider. 
His glory is seen and, and He is the one who upholds the world by the authority of who He is. He, he gets great glory and the incredible love is connected to His nature. God is love. The glory of God is revealed in the way He is graceful to sinners. His glory is revealed in that He is the creator of the universe. And His glory is revealed in that He is the great victor and the great conqueror of everything. So in this context of John chapter 13, as we are here today, both He and the Father will get glory in the work of the cross. The cross reveals so much about the nature of the Father and the Son. And one of the amazing realities of the cross, don't miss this this morning, is that the worst that we could offer God is seen in the cross. That we want to kill God and crucify Him. And hanging from a cross naked publicly. And yet on the flip side of that, God's great at flipping things. The amazing, glorious nature of of Christ is seen in the cross. So the cross reveals our darkness and what we think of Him. And then also in that reality, we see that the glorious nature of who Christ is is seen in the cross. So the grandeur of God's glory is on full display at the cross. So I want to say this right now, just for a moment, and I want want you to do this in your mind just for a second if you're a Christ follower. If this is the case, and it is, that the glory and the grandeur of the majesty of His nature is there, connected to the cross, we need to stop right now and just fix our gaze, fix our heart, fix our mind on the reality of what was done outside of Jerusalem on a hill called Calvary 2,000 years ago. The most amazing thing took place is that God became our substitute. He took our sin and He gave us His righteousness. It's the divine exchange. It's the greatest event in the history of the world. God had come. He had been sent by His Father. He had fulfilled everything the Father asked Him to fulfill. And He went all the way to the cross. Look at the bravery of Christ, what He says to Judas. What you're about to do, go do it quickly. Why? Now is the hour. I'd come for this hour. I'd come for this hour to die as the substitute. Listen to these words from Isaiah 53, 6. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him, on him, the iniquity of us all. So one of the great aspects of his glory is seen in Christ's willingness to take our sin and to die as our substitute for what we rightly deserved. So not only does the Son of Man get glory in the cross, but as the Son dies, the Father gets the great glory in the fulfillment of this plan to bring redemption. Now, I want to do this. I have to do it because Jesus speaks about it here. As He turns to the leaven, He speaks about a third aspect of the glory, and this is it. That there's a unity of the Father and the Son getting glory in the cross at the same time, getting the glory in themselves from one another. So look at the first part of 32. If, that's not an if, if I'm going to have lunch today. It's not one of those things. It's, no, it's, it's since this is true, 
since this is the case, this is what Jesus is saying, since God, since the Father is glorified in the Son, that's what Jesus is saying here, the Father will, this, the Father will glorify the Son in Himself. So you see the unity of the glory of the Father and the Son. So since God is glorified in Him, God will glorify the Son in Himself. This is definitely going to take place. Not I hope this takes place later. Jesus is saying, no, my Father is glorified in me. And the Father will glorify me in Himself. This uniqueness and this unity of the Father and the Son. So the Father is glorified in Christ. Christ is glorified in the Father. And while it is amazing to think of, and when you look at that in Scripture, that angels give great testimony of the glory of God, it is nothing like the Father and the Son giving glory to one another and honoring one another and glorying in who they are. How do we know Jesus gets this great glory? Is there any scriptural evidence that Jesus gets this great glory? And uh, believe it or not, there's a lot of them, but let me give you one really, really good one. This is the Apostle Paul who said this about Jesus. Have this kind of mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, speaking of Jesus now, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Now listen to this. Every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So the Father is glorified in Christ. Christ is glorified in the Father. And I tell you, as I said a while ago, God is so good at just flipping things upside down and making what seems upside down to be the normal aspect of things in the kingdom. A crucifixion 2,000 years ago was the highest of shame. We, it dang, crosses dangle from our mirrors, our ears. We put them around our necklaces. We put them on our pockets of our shirt. They're on our jeans, and they're everywhere. You didn't do that 2,000 years ago. And the reason we do that today, we glory in the symbol of the cross, is because of who hung there and the significance of his life. So the highest display of the glory of the Father and of the Son is seen in this great work of the cross. And at the cross, the justice of God is so clearly seen we had a justice problem god demands holiness and he demands justice concerning our sin and we can't make it right we can't be good enough we can't tip the scales in our favor there's nothing that we could do about that we are desperate for help god demands holiness we don't have any and so god's solution was this he sent his son to be our substitute so that as He died and in our faith in Him, He takes our sin and He gives us His righteousness, His sinlessness, 
His holiness. And we're washed by His blood. And we're given this great hope that is connected to our salvation. So the cross just shows the justice of God and that the cross, the punishment is not poured out on the sinner who comes to faith. It is poured out on the one who is holy and and righteous. And it's poured on the one who is undeserving and can bring salvation. And he satisfied the demands. Let's look at we're almost done. Famous preacher last words, doke last words, but we really are. Look at the last part of 32. And again, he's telling this to the 11, and will glorify him at once. This word at once means immediate without delay. This time of His great honor from the Father to the Son was now. Now He was going to glorify the Son. Now the Father would get the glory now in the Son. So God, the Father, will glorify Christ in Himself at once. At once. And though the cross is hours away, it is going to take place because it's the perfect plan. Jesus is the perfect one. And He will go all the way. And embrace it. And in the incarnation, his glory and the Father's glory was the supreme end of what he came to do as he died on the cross to give glory to himself and to the Father. So if you and I today, in 2021, on this last Sunday in August, want to see the glory of God and we want to see the magnificence of that in the most clear way, then we look to Him who's hanging outside of Jerusalem at Calvary. God bearing our sin in His body, expressing His love for sinners who are broken and desperately in need of spiritual healing. So if we want to see His awesome glory, then the primary place I would say to you to look is the cross of Jesus Christ. That is where glory is seen in an incredible, credible way. By the way, in these days, I don't know if you are, I am, and we probably all ought to be, when I look at the brokenness and when it touches me, even in my own life, the brokenness of our world, it just longs for me to say, come Lord Jesus, bring your healing, fix this, we need you. But also know this, that when we get to heaven and we are with Him in that holy city forever and ever, you know what we will never forget of? You know we never we will never forget? The cross. John writes in Revelation that he, he looked in heaven, he looked in the throne room of heaven, and he saw a lamb looking like it had been slain. What did John see? Scars. He saw scars. A lamb that had been slain is cut broken it's been sacrificed and for all of eternity boys and girls listen to me students adults for all of eternity we will live in the light of the magnificence of the glory of christ where we need no sun we need no moon because the light of the glory of christ 
will light up the place for all of eternity. And we will behold him who was slain on our behalf. And we will live in that light forever and ever. And that's why Jesus on this night could have done it. Again, he could have done a number of different things. What did he do? He called them to say this, I'm going to get glory in the cross. My Father's going to get glory on the cross. And you're going to be the benefactors of that. You're going to be the ones who gets this great grace from the Father. Now, I know that y'all don't remember the, all the words that I said, and they're so magnificent, all the words that I've said through the years and the months. And so I want to I say three statements as we kind of finish up this morning of something I said probably three months ago, and I went back to that sermon. I stole them out of that sermon because you wouldn't remember I said them anyway. Okay, so why? Why does he get great glory and the work of the cross. Well, I could stand here all day and give you a bunch of reasons. I want to point out three as we finish. The first one is this. The cross reveals the glory of Christ by revealing that everybody must come to Him for salvation. That there's salvation in no, no one else. And so as we behold the cross, we learn that, that there is salvation. Acts 4.12, there is salvation in no one else but the name of Jesus. So He gets great glory in that in the cross... In his death and in his obedience and his dying for us, he had been given the name above all name. And so therefore, if there's going to be salvation, it's not going to be man's works. It's not going to be being baptized. It's not going to be being a member of a church. It's not by being morally good. Whatever the case may be, it's going to be only that faith rests in the work of the cross in Christ. And so he gets, he gets great glory by revealing that everyone must come to him for salvation. Secondly, the cross of Christ gives him great glory by destroying man's ability to be able to boast. We don't get to boast. We don't get to point to ourselves. So Paul said it like this. One of the great chapters of the New Testament, 1 Corinthians 1, 27 and following. You see, God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. And God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low, like the cross, the shameful cross, and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of Him, only because of Him, not because of your work, not because you're morally good, and because of Him, you are in Christ Jesus, who has become to us the wisdom of God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. So that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Here's the third reason, or one of the third reasons, or a third reason why Christ gets great glory. The cross shows that Christ, shows Christ's glory by revealing that he is the perfect revelation of God's love and God's justice. We love this verse and... We should always love this verse. For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only unique Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. It's one of my favorite verses of all time, this one. But God shows His love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 5.8 And then John Later writes these words in 1 John 4.10. Let me tell you about love. 
Let me tell you about love. In this is love. Not that we loved God, but that God loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. You as a Christ follower ought to know propitiation. It'll help your English language pronunciation. And you ought to know what that word means because it's a magnificent word. You know what it means? It means this. One who bears the wrath and satisfies the demands of the Father. And that's what Christ did. When He hung on the cross, this culmination of the holiness of God and the justice of God in regard to sinners was met when Christ bore our sin. And so... He sent His Son to be the propitiation. He bore the wrath that we deserved to have. So as we, as I re, I'm going to read one more verse just here in a moment, but I want to ask a question to us. So this last point is, there was no delay in the Father glorifying the Son. And I want to pose this question to us. Should there be any delay in our lives in giving Christ the greatest exaltation in the cross there should never be a delay in the church in expressing our love to Jesus and our passion to exalt him we should not ever if we really understand the depth and depravity of our sin and what we have been saved from there should never be anybody going come on people come on see the glory of Christ we should see that and it should motivate us and move us to not be coaxed to glorify him but to come in here and just say, I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm broken this week, I've had a bad week, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to glorify you because you are the one who is worthy. And so I will exalt you. So I want to close with this. The Apostle Paul, a couple of times, spoke of himself being the chief sinner. Y'all remember that? He's the chief of sinners. Pam, my wife and I have often talked about that phrase from Paul, trying to understand what did he mean. And I, and I you know, we're, again, we're just trying, trying to think about what does Paul mean. We've kind of settled on what, what I think Paul meant was this, is I think he looked back at his life and he remembered what he was doing before he became a follower. And I think he looks back and knows that he was... He was giving approval to Stephen when he was stoned to death. He was a Christian killer. He arrested Christians. I think he, he looked back over his life and I think he thought about who he used to be. And so he looked at that and he thought, man, I'm, I'm the chief of sinners. Look who I was. But then if you read Paul's letters, he is blown away in who he has become, has he not? He's, just, he's amazed that who he used to be is not who he is now. And that's why in 2 Timothy that we will read, not this week, but next week, as we're going through 2 Timothy together in the W4 this week, Paul will say this, I've run the race, I've fought the good fight, I've finished the course, and now what is in store for me is the crown of righteousness. And here is, here is heart. Now what is in store for me is the crown of righteousness. And then he says these words, which the Lord himself will give me. He, he couldn't wait to be in Christ's presence again. That's why he said in Philippians, it's good for me to be here for the churches, but if I had my brothers, I'd just prefer to leave this earth and, and go be with my Savior. But if I'm here, 
I will live for him here. So for me to live is Christ and for me to die is Christ. Both of them are gain. And so I think when Paul's writing to the church in Galatia that's lost its way, he writes these words, Far be it from me to boast in anything but the cross of Christ by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. I had to go back and read where did this phrase come from? Was Jesus the first one or, or did we kind of forget about this, this phrase? Far be it from me. It's a word that just, it's a phrase that just means this. This is what should be far from me. And then there's one thing that should be near me. And what should be far from me is boasting about anything else. And what should be near me flowing out of my mouth is that I boast in the work of Christ and His glory on the cross. And this word boast means to rejoice, to exult in So we are to have one great boast, one great exaltation, one great love for the glory of the cross of Christ. And all exaltation in anything else should should not happen for the follower of Christ. And I tell you, without the cross, we have nothing. You know that, right? Without the cross, we have nothing. There is no hope. There is no future. There is no ultimate goodness All we have ever needed is found in the work of the cross. So we must be cross-centered, cross-saturated, cross-satisfied people, cross-focused people, cross-consumed people. Far from us boasting about anything but the cross of Christ. And I go back to what I said in the beginning. I look around at the world and it's so broken. And I feel the heaviness even as I preach today of all the stuff that's going on around the world. By the way, just to let you know, as a church family this week, there's a there's a group of people that have been rescuing Afghani Christians out of Afghanistan because they've been the focus of slaughter by the Taliban. And we gave $2,500 to that because these people are flying in of their own dollar to fly into Afghanistan to to get Christians out who are going to be killed. And so we gave some money to help do that this week, um, knowing that's really important um, to be there for our brothers and sisters that we will worship Him for all of eternity with when we do get there. But the world is in such trouble. And the world is in trouble for two reasons. The world has rejected the glory of Christ. And the world has no idea about the glory and the magnificence of the cross. And so that's why you have a broken world. Y'all remember what Romans 8 says? Paul says that creation does what? It groans. Why is creation groaning? Because when the fall of man happened in Genesis, creation was thrown into turmoil. So you have have earthquakes like Haiti. You have hurricanes entering the United States right now. Why? Because the earth is saying, Someone fix me. Someone bring wholeness. That's why 
The lost of the world go from place to place because there's because Ecclesiastes 3.11 says, God has placed eternity in the hearts of man and man can't fathom it so man doesn't know what to do and so people search and search and search and we have the answer and the answer is the glory of God in Christ and the cross of Jesus and they're longing to hear it. They're longing to hear it. So I am totally not surprised that as the traitor leaves the room, Jesus turns to the eleven and says, Men, it is the glory of the cross. The Father being glorified, I being glorified, is the answer and the hope of the world. And it's why Christ should be all to us. He should be our deepest passion and our deepest love. Let's pray together.